Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Arya Bramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Good to see you. Give me a wave. Hello, hello. So good to see everybody. Rick, Erica, Brandon, Kathy, Chomnath Long. That's a new name. I see that your wall. There's a beautiful menorah on the wall. I don't see your face, but it's exciting to have you here. Mark and Kat, wow, look at Khaled Ardell. That's exciting, guys, you gotta see the screen here. We got a whole community that's come together. I'm eager to hear about that. I just got a message from Jeremy that we're gonna be hearing about that. So that's exciting. Um, anyways, uh, what a week, what a week. It is so good to see all of you. There's, you know, I'll tell you, there's something that's starting to happen this summer that I actually recognized from last summer when the Gempels left on their last trip spreading light throughout the exile and I had the merit of taking over the weekly fellowship because it's too unpredict unpredictable. Jeremy doesn't know where he's going to be, if it's going to be possible. So I'm on the job. And, and I remember this groove that I'm starting to feel again. There's this, there's definitely something to be said for this groove that we're getting in together because throughout the week, I'm getting so many questions and comments and ideas that you're sharing with me which get me thinking, which carries over into the coming fellowship. And the fellowship becomes a little bit more like an inter interactive discussion where I do most of the sharing with you during the fellowship itself. And then throughout the week, so many of you share with me and we get into sort of a flow. So I really enjoy that. And I hope it keeps going. And uh, while Jeremy and I have never been good at analytics and numbers and A-B testing, I've seen both from looking at the numbers of views of the full fellowship sessions, but also from the uh, comments that I'm getting from you, that a lot of you uh, really can't make it to the live Zoom session every week, which by the way, I think is really important and really fun to attend whenever you can, whenever possible to be here live. It's just, you can't compare. But, uh, but then they watch the session after the fact on YouTube. So anyways, the point I'm making is that while these back-to-back -back weeks take a lot of prep and they aren't easy, I really love them and consider it a privilege to have this more concentrated time with all of you. And I'm grateful to all of you for entrusting me with this great honor. Um, so thank you for that. And while I'm eager to dive into the portion, I know you are all eager to hear from Jeremy and Tehillah, and so am I. Because just so you know, Jeremy and I have this unwritten practice of bare bones, minimal communication while either one of us is traveling. It's almost like we recognize that we're so up in each other's grills while we're living on two opposing slopes of the same mountain that when we're on the road, we take the opportunity to have a little bit of a, let's call it a sabbatical from each other, which is a healthy, despite the fact that I really miss my best buddy and, uh, and the whole family. Really guys, Jeremy, Tahila, I don't know if you guys are here with me right now, but we really miss you. You guys are such a source of blessing and light, and your absence makes us feel it even more tangibly. Uh, but our loss is other people's gain. And I've been hearing from a lot of the people you've touched, even momentarily, our beloved Charlene, you know, not the teddy bear that Dvash sleeps with every night, but the mama of the teddy bear who gave it to Dvash. Well, she shared how much she enjoyed her visit with you. I know a number of other people have also. Um, Anyways, Ardell wrote me a beautiful message and sent pics, which I was going to show front and center, but now I won't, and I'm not using the, the message she sent me or the pictures, and soon you guys will know why. But it was really nice to see them. I appreciate them, Ardell. Okay, so you guys are lighting up the countryside, and that's beautiful, but there is a price, right? I should really just stop here and not rub, rub the salt in the wound, but in your absence, Shiloh just said his first word. And you know what it was? Cram. Cram. Sorry, it could have been Jeremy or Tehila, but nope, it was cram. Now, obviously, I'm kidding. Shiloh, man, Shem bless him, is only two months old. But who are the crams, you may wondering this word cram? Well, they're beautiful people, dear friends, who are renting the, Gim the Gimpel's house for the time that they're gone. And they're bringing such a great, different energy to the farm. After all, there's four families at the farm, so you switch one out, especially as powerful as the Gimpel's there's gonna be a, a big difference. So the Krams normally live in the relatively urban nearby village of Efrat here in Judea, but they've come out here for the summer. And the Abba, the father, Toby, a good friend of ours, he is just loving what his family is being exposed to out here. 
because while our mountain is only a 12 minute drive from Efrat, it's a different world. Really, you guys are going to see it when you come out here. So recently, one of our shepherdesses, like just this past week, one of our shepherdesses here from the farm got married. And last night we hosted the Sheva Brachot out here. And just to remember, what's a Sheva Brachot? When a Jewish couple gets married, every night for the week after they get married, they celebrate the Sheva Brachot where friends and family throw a big feast and celebrate them. So they don't have to cook or prepare or think about anything other than each other. So that was at the farm last night. I was up north celebrating my father's healing and being alive. And Toby sent me this beautiful video from the Sheva Brachot. Then he sent me this message. He said, people here aren't Ashkenazi or Sephardi. They're Judean. You know, Ashkenazi being from Europe and Sephardi being from the Arab countries. He said, they're not Ashkenazi or Sephardi. They're Judean. A Judean Sheva Brachot for a young bride and groom. And it was just so perfect. I wanted to share that with you. Toby shared that with me. It was just beautifully put and so true. Anyways, there's a lot of light shining on personal levels on the inside. Right? And you can look at the klipot and the shells and the superficial layers of what's happening in the world, and you could be disheartened. Right? But my, uh, my friend and Rabbi Yishai, he recently explained to me, he just said all that stuff, right? the political theater and the governmental shenanigans, it's all meant to distract us from the redemptive beauty that's unfolding before our eyes. We just need to look for it and have the eyes to see it. And it's just so obviously true. Okay, so I could go on more about what's happening at the farm, but for now... I think we're eager to hear from Jeremy and Tahila. So you guys there? Yes, here we are. Can you hear us? Yes, Yes. (laughs) shalom. Okay, first I just want to share with you uh, where we are. We are in Cedar Falls, Iowa. I've never been to Iowa. Tahila has never been to Iowa. And we're in just the most beautiful place. This is the home like retreat center that we were at. This is the campus that's all around us. And we sort of took this place that was organized by members of our fellowship, and we spent a Shabbat here. And people from Wisconsin and all over Iowa, I don't know, 40 to 50 people, it seemed like, came here for pretty much the entire Shabbat. We were here, and we learned together, prayed together, had Kiddush together, meals together, Torah study together, Havdalah together. This is, and Shabbos ends here like on Monday. It's like never ends. It's like the longest Shabbat. It's like a full day into the night. It's like until 10 o'clock at night. And it was the first time Tehillah and I have ever done anything like that, where we hosted a Shabbat as a family. Last night, Eden, our 12-year-old, was up, I'm not exaggerating, until one in the morning, learning and talking and conversing and teaching and every little bit of information that she had to give over she has given over in the last i would say 28 to 30 hours just teach us blossoming being who she um was destined to be and you know we've been out of israel now for two weeks and i'm going to pass it over to tila in just a second but i just wanted to say just getting that little glimpse right now of the sheva brachot on the farm from Be'eri's wedding and i'm missing that is really disappointing for us but then seeing those people with the ancient Middle Eastern instruments that are playing, you know, just that music in that scenery. And then the idea that those aren't Ashkenazi Jews or Sephardic Jews, those are kind of concepts that were made in the exile with people that were exiled to Europe or exiled to the Arab countries. And those kind of traditions developed. And now they're, they're just Judean. And I really feel like somehow our lives have placed us at the cutting edge of God's move in the world of history that's unfolding. That most places in Israel, you know, you go to visit places of the past. You go to visit old synagogues, old churches, old archaeological sites, and you visit the history and the museums of Israel and the ancient history and just the thousands and years of of all that's happened in that land. And then just watching that video of the Arugot farm, just for that brief little moment, it really felt like a snapshot into the future where there is no more Ashkenazi and Sephardi, that whole thing of the exile, that's already been dwindled away and melted into the Jews that are just growing up in the land of Israel, speaking Hebrew in the mountains of Judea. And it's as if like there's a museum into the future in the Arugod farm where you can sort of experience the next step of biblical destiny. And I really felt, however weird this sounds, we're in the mid, mid-America. I've never been here before. 
but it felt like we were touching into the future here as well, that we were out here in the middle of the United States, removed from the big cities, outside in nature, in this beautiful place, and the righteous among the nations were pulled out of their different communities and cities and came together to celebrate a Judean Shabbat out here, where it really felt like we had a little part of the Arugot farm in the land of Israel here in the middle of Iowa. And it's somehow we've been blessed in this fellowship to not only celebrate the past, but somehow be the first pioneers into a new future. And that was just uh, kind of touching on how similar and how different it is, the Arugot farm to Iowa. But at the same time, we're sort of touching on this chapter, this unfolding prophecy, this sort of next step in the history of Israel that's unfolding. And that just really touched my heart. Thank you for sharing that video of the Sheva Brachot after the wedding. All right, Taylor, your turn. <laughs> Thank you. I agree with everything you're saying. <clears throat> so we're having the most amazing ship. And <clears throat> I feel like, have you ever seen those guys on the beach where there's like, you know, garbage all over the beach and they're there with like some metal detector, like looking for treasure. That's how I feel our ship is in America. We are driving through and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff in America culturally going on, but it's like we're navigating through with this. It's like this spiritual metal detector as we're traveling through America. And I feel like we are just picking up treasures everywhere we go, but they are people treasures, just the most precious people. We got to meet amazing, wonderful fellowship members in Pennsylvania and in Ohio. And then between Ohio and coming here to Iowa, we needed to stop over in Chicago. And I'm just sharing the story so to understand how much we are seeing Hashem's perfect guidance in this trip, just showing us exactly where we need to go along the way. We decided we wanted some kosher food uh, in Chicago on the way over crossing to Iowa. We didn't do anything in Chicago except for search through the 20 different kosher restaurants there to try to find a place to eat. And we picked, you know, I went eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and ended up in this restaurant and we sit down to eat. Now, I've been to Chicago twice in my life and I only know one person in Chicago. Some uh, friend that I had when I was in high school and he lived in uh, Chicago and we lost touch after high school. And 10 years ago, Jeremy was running a Shabbaton in Chicago. It was my first time in Chicago. Who shows up at the Shabbaton? This friend. That was cool. We took a selfie, you know, nice memories. Wonderful. 10 years go by. We come into this restaurant and who walks in? The one person that I know in Chicago who I haven't been in touch with for those 10 years or for the 10 years before. I haven't been friends with this person for 20 years. Walks into the restaurant. I said, oh my God. It's you. This is my second time in Chicago. He said, this is my first time in this restaurant. I've never been here. I just suddenly felt like coming here. So we meet and every single Jew that we've told along the way that we're coming to Iowa said, Iowa, what are you doing in Iowa? No one seems to know much about Iowa. And I tell him, well, we're on our way to Iowa. And he goes, I know people in Iowa. I said, you're the first Jew to tell me that. He goes, I know Jewish farmers in Iowa who used to live in the city and moved out with all of their children to start a farm. I said, you know, our exilic alter egos, <laughs> we want to meet them. He gives me the phone number. We call these people. We set to meet the next day. Turns out that this Jewish farm, we go to their website. It's a Jewish farm. That's an educational farm. Get this guys with a swimming pool. Like what can the message be any louder? They are on the way, on the exact highway that we had to, that connects Chicago to Cedar Falls, where we are in Iowa. So on the way to Cedar Falls, we stop and meet these Jewish farmers, the most amazing people. We never, ever would have possibly imagined that out in the middle of Iowa, there's a Jewish family with 12 children where they bring all the Jewish students that come around and bring them to teach them. They do pool and Parsha, and they're learning to milk their own goats and make cheese and all the kind of same experiences that we're having just out here in the exile as we're kind of trying to connect people with the Judean lifestyle and the ancient biblical ways. While we're in Israel, they're doing it here in America, trying to connect Jews to just, you know, nature and the land and seeing Hashem. And so we were just so blessed. That's just like one tiny example of the way that we feel we're being guided throughout this journey. And 
we're so blessed to have this wonderful Shabbat and to meet fellowship members and to hear how the fellowship is connecting them and how the fellowship is having is being a blessing in their lives. So thank you to all of our friends for hosting us. I wanted to say a few words about the Torah portion. A funny thing is that when you read this week's Torah portion of Balak, my first impression, I don't know if you get this too, Jeremy, but is that Bilam kind of gets a bad rap. You know, if you ask any Jewish child who this Parsha is about, they won't just say Bilam, they'll say Bilam Harasha, which means the evil Bilam. He's a prophet and he's always asking Hashem what to do. Why does he get such a bad rap? You know, in this past parsha in Chukat, we see that Moshe didn't exactly listen to Hashem when Hashem said to speak to the rock. He hit the rock. And so he didn't get to go into the land because it's so important to listen to Hashem. And then right now in the following parsha, you have Bilam. And right before he makes this decision, he asks Hashem and he consults Hashem again. He should be a hero. But Hashem seems to be unpleased with him. Even his donkey seems to be doing better than him. There's angry angels showing up, and we call him evil Bilam for generations upon generations. So what could possibly be going on here? And then, you know, I was thinking, it's true that he's asking Hashem what to do every step along the way. But what is he asking Hashem ad- Hashem's guidance about? He's asking Hashem, well, should I help commit genocide? Jeremy and I once heard this comedian, who's probably getting nervous as I'm telling this story. I'm not going to tell the entire comedy routine, but there was a comedian. He was talking about, you know, his friend that was trying to understand why bad things are happening to him in his life. And he says, I don't understand why this is happening to me. I'm a good person. I don't do crime. I've never been in prison. And he said to his friend, you're not supposed to do crime. You're not supposed to be in prison. That's not like a high level. He's asking Hashem if he should do genocide. That's not a high level. Yeah, great, good. Congratulations, you're asking Hashem. But before you can have a relationship with Hashem, maybe the Torah is teaching us, there needs to be a base of being a person with a strong understanding of right and wrong. Listening to Hashem is not the first step. Listening to Hashem can only happen, that relationship can only happen if you've built a solid internal compass of right and wrong. Avraham didn't just listen to Hashem when Hashem said he's going to destroy Stone. He was like, I know right and wrong. Hashem, the judge of all the earth must do justice. He knew right and wrong. When Hashem said to Moshe that he was going to destroy the Jewish people, Moshe wasn't just like, oh yeah, okay, whatever you say, Hashem, I'm listening to you. He was like, no, I'm going to throw myself under the bus before I let you kill the Jewish people. Hashem, has a relationship with us that's built upon a strong moral foundation of knowing right and wrong. Rabbi Avram Yitzhak Cohen Cook says, you want to know a good yardstick, a good litmus test? If your piety or sense of piety is actually beloved to Hashem, try to imagine a world where you didn't have your piety. Would the world run better or worse? If you're a person who thinks that their religious experience or their religious imperative sends them to go kill the Fogel family or to go, you know, kill a girl in their bed, consider the possibility that your piety is not so beloved to Hashem. If you could imagine that the world would be better and more kind and more loving and less uh, evil without your piety, then you might be going in the wrong direction. So I thought that that was just a, a beautiful message and it connected to me with the experience that we're having here on Shabbat. Because every single person that we're meeting from the fellowship, I feel, I just feel so blessed. I said, Jeremy, how did we get blessed to have the holiest people aggregating around us from all over the nation? Each person that we spoke to is honestly and truly trying to listen to Hashem in their lives. But the amazing thing is that it's built upon such a solid foundation of goodness that speaks for itself that you can really feel that that relationship with Hashem is true and good and beloved, not like Balaam's relationship with Hashem, but a relationship that's built on goodness. I heard over this Shabbat the words, my adopted something, more than I've heard in my entire life put together. My adopted grandchild, my adopted child, my adopted, everybody is 
working so hard to do the good. You know, I've heard more times people saying, when I was helping with this, when I was volunteering with that, when I was giving over to that, when I was building for, you know, these people. And the goodness just speaks for itself because you look around and you see people, not one person who I spoke to has had an easy journey in life. But every person is just, you can see the blessings in the relationships, in the family, in the energy that people give off, in the faith that they uh, inspire among the people around them. So I just, with that, wanted to end with my gratitude for getting to spend time with such wonderful people and to be inspired as we continue this guided journey throughout the United States. Wow. Bye, guys. All right. So I, I wanted to just really build on what Tahila said that, you know, I think that Tahila and I, the sort of the covenant of our marriage was we want to be guided. We want to live a life that's guided by God and wherever that takes us, if it takes us out to the wilderness of the mountains, if it takes us to the ends of middle America and Iowa, if we feel like Hashem is leading us in that direction, we're just going to try to be our best to be courageous and to just go off into the unknown. And we've been blessed beyond measure. And one of the most marvelous things about this Shabbat is that there were so many people from the fellowship came, but many of the people didn't know each other because one is from Wisconsin and one is from Iowa. And all of a sudden they all came together. And I heard people say, it's like, we've never met, but it feels like we've, we're family. <laughs> it's like we've, we immediately enter into best friend mode. It's like, we've, we've known each other our whole lives and how amazing it's been to sort of weave this tapestry together. And then at the end of Shabbat, when we did Havdalah, I couldn't help but feel as though the words of Isaiah in the most beautiful of all messianic prophecies was coming to pass with us. Because what Tehillah said is like the foundation of that prophecy. And Isaiah talks about the nations. And he says, those among the nations, do not say, this is in Isaiah chapter 56, right at the very beginning, let not the stranger say, do not say Hashem will utterly separate me from his people. And let not the barren one say, behold, I'm a shriveled tree. Do not think that because you're outside of Israel, that you're scattered among the nations, that you're somehow separated from Israel, separated from the Jewish people. No, no, no. You are a part of the people. And all those who observe my Sabbath and choose what I desire and grasp my covenant tightly. Then Isaiah says right before that, all who guard Shabbat against desecration and guard his hand against doing any evil. It's like those two things, those who guard the Sabbath among the nations and who keep their hands away from doing any evil. It's like there's really clear at the beginning of creation. There's light and there's dark. There's good and there's evil. And that's the basis. And those that really walk in that light of just every day trying to become a little bit better, every day stepping a little bit more into the light, bringing a little bit more into the light, staying away from the dark, staying away from the evil. But then those that really, when you listen to sort of the journey of everyone, it was like a passion for truth, a passion for following the truth in their lives, a truth that's written in the Tanakh. And, you know, the Ten Commandments speak about Shabbat. And so if we take the Ten Commandments so seriously, what do we do with number four? It's such an obvious yardstick that now many people have different observances, different beliefs, different theologies, different ways in which they observe and which they practice. But someone that reads the Ten Commandments and just kind of says, nah, that was done away with. We don't really care about that. Well, if number four was done away with, why not number three or number two or number six or number seven? And it's like, well, if we take this seriously, the Shabbat needs to be an integral part of our life. And Tehillah and I never knew how special it would be to celebrate Shabbat and host a Shabbat for the righteous that are among the nations. And then to actually see that here it says, in my house, this is verse five, in my house and within my walls, I will give them a place of honor and renown, which is better than the sons and daughters. Eternal renown I will give them, which will never be terminated. The strangers, the non-Jews who join themselves to Hashem to serve him, to love the name of Hashem, to become servants unto him. All who guard the Sabbath against desecration and grasp my covenant tightly. I'll bring them to my holy mountain, and ultimately my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And it's like, what are the things that are happening here? It's like the righteous among the nations that are able to step out of the mainstream, that just follow the truth that's been revealed to them in their life. Shabbat is obviously the very next step. God made this day holy. God's blessed this day. What does that mean for me in my own personal life? And 
saying that those people will be given more honor and renown than the sons and daughters of Israel. I feel like until this Shabbat deal and I could never have really understood that. Why would they get more honor and renown than the sons and daughters of Israel? We actually had an argument about it in the car. And here we saw that the righteousness and the passion for truth and the dedication and commitment that it took to break free from their structures and their culture and their family's pressures and friends' pressures and just the wander off into the desert of in an unsown land with an unclear way, just following the light that God had given them has just created such a righteousness and to be able to somehow facilitate connecting all of these people together and from people that were just virtual on Zoom in this fellowship to manifest in the material has just been marvelous. So what I wanna do now is I wanna turn over this fellowship over to the building over there because the whole team is, they're sort of watching the fellowship in there. So I can't go inside there because there'll probably be feedbacks and different like voices that will be heard from the delay. But I just wanted to call out Ardell and Marcy, Hello, Ardell and Marcy are coming. to come here just to sort of share with the fellowship that was in the virtual and then to have them come here in the physical. And uh, I tried to share that this was of the most memorable Shabbats of my life. This is one of those that will never go away. This is going with me all the way to the world to come. And I just wanted to um, bring them on to allow them to share their experiences and let them share with the fellowship and let them um, kind of be with you. So here they are. Hi, I'm Ardell. Hi, fellowship family. <laughs> I mean, really, we really learned what that meant this weekend. We really, really are family. This is Marcy. I know you've seen Marcy before. Um, and and we met uh, Curtis and Becky Liebel, and you kind of probably know them a lot too, but that's what I really learned this week is that this fellowship really, really is family. There were lots of people who came, and, and uh, we all connected so much. We all felt so much in common. And then to have the Gimpels here, we got to meet all of their kids. We got to spend time with each one. We know their personalities and they're a crazy bunch. And and we just loved them so much. We wish it would go on and on. In fact, at one point we were like, are we dreaming? Are we going to wake up and go and this really never happened? And so, yeah, it was just terrific. It, uh, we don't really want it to end. We don't want to let go of them. We grabbed the hold of their tzitziot and said, take us with you and, um, but anyway, uh, I don't want to take up too much time. Thank you so much um, for being part of our family. And Marcy has something really, really special to say. Well, I just, it's on my heart to especially speak to any of you in the fellowship that are alone. Because I do this alone. This was my first Shabbat. And I've had a book that I've had about the Shabbat table for two years and I haven't had anybody to do it with. And I didn't tell anybody this till this morning. But Ardell's first Shabbat was in Israel. And my first Shabbat was with Israel. So it's just been such a blessing. So I just want to encourage you if you're out there in the fellowship and you're you're on your own doing this, there we're here virtually and you know i'm hoping that they get the stuff going about how to connect more because you're not alone you're not alone and it's just beautiful and i just i i hope whoever gets to see them while they're on this trip can experience what we've experienced so i just want to say thanks thank you Anyway, guys, I'm going to give it a We are so lucky to have Marcy and Ardell in our lives and in our fellowship and as our friends and everybody in this crew. But really, you are so not alone. And thank you for everything that you've done to bring us here. And so that's lots of love. There were a lot of tears over Shabbat. <laughs> there were. I was crying. Tahil was crying. It was just like overwhelmed with emotion and just we're touching something that is of the soul and so the body responds. And so just know that what we're doing is just of the soul, out of this world, supernatural. And we're just blessed to be a part of it. So Ari, back in the Arugod farm that's sort of holding down the fort. Bye Ari. Shalom from Bye. Iowa. Wow, how touching was that? How beautiful is that? Marcy, thank you for opening your heart like that and becoming vulnerable. And I know that there are a lot of people in this fellowship 
who are alone and whether they're alone as one person or feeling alone in the world, a couples who feel alone, for us to be able to come together, it's like our souls are uniting. And I think there were a lot of tears just now, Marcy, not only you, I'm looking at the faces. And uh, Jeremy, Tahila, I am, I'm jealous. I am jealous of you guys. I'm jealous. Like, I think it's a holy jealousy. I think, I don't know for sure. But um, meaning we've been trying to bring the fellowship to Judea, but uh, until then, bringing Judea to the fellowship, you know, and I hear it in your voices. And I know that energy of spending a Shabbat together, just electrical sparks going and the souls igniting and everybody coming closer and closer to Hashem. I know that energy. I hear it in your voices. I love it. I love it. Anyways, I hope we have a lot more of that. Share, these, share this with us, guys. Really, if it happens during the week, make a little video and send it to us in an email. Okay, Jeremy, good to see you. Don't shut it off. You there? Good to see you, Jeremy. Anyways. I'm going to go inside now with the whole team, and yeah, we're going to yeah. watch the fellowship from the inside. Oh, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> okay, I need you here, dude. I need you. Anyways, this is actually a special Torah portion. This is, it's, you know, it's one of those portions that, you know, if you learn the Torah in elementary school, and then you go off to a public school or a less religious life, you could just write off the Torah as silly fairy tales of talking donkeys, right? But, uh, but that would just be so tragic because the beauty and the truth and the wisdom hidden in these chapters are just so life-changing and powerful and inspiring. And in my life, I've just seen it so many times. Friends from elementary school who went to the Hebrew Academy where I went to school, we had a bunch of kids, like 35, 40 kids. And then in junior high, they all left in the fifth grade. And they're like, yeah, I learned the whole Torah thing, the Bible thing. And they just like left it behind. And it's just so sad because they're like, yeah, I've been there, done that. I got it. I've just seen how much better it is often to have no exposure at all rather than limited exposure as a child, which often convinces people that they know all that there is to know and they could just summarily and flippantly dismiss it and write it off as childish nonsense. It's just so sad. Anyways, but let's talk about happy stuff. Let's start, uh, with, let's start with the first verse. Vayakar Balak ben Sipor et kol asher asa Yisrael emori and Balak the son of Tzipor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was very afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was distressed because of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, now shall this company lick up all who are around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field? And Balak, the son of Tzipor, was king of the Moabites at the time. Now, it's interesting. It says at the end he was king of the Moabites. But why does it just start by talking about Balak and not King Balak? Because apparently he was a renowned, infamous soldier of the Moabites, and he became king that way. So he was already famous just as Balak, not just because he was king. Anyways, now I think one of the reasons that this is such a unique portion is because the narrative shifts. And while the Torah has been somewhat, let's say, um, Israel-centric, Jewish people-centric in the story up until now. Here, for the first time, the Israelites sort of become the extras in our own story. Right? We see the story playing out sort of behind our backs. For the entire portion, we're seeing before our eyes how Hashem is coming to our aid, right? Uh, affecting our salvation when we didn't even know that it was happening. And not only that, we find out how Hashem talks about us behind our backs. We find out how he feels about us, even when we are in the midst of rebellions and complaining and just general petulant childish behavior, which is important because these Torah portions are just rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. It's demoralizing and it's disheartening. You're like, could Hashem possibly still love us? That's how I feel about it sometimes, just on a, on a visceral, emotional level. And, uh, and we, of course, we also we see how wrong the spies were in their projection that the nations of the, Israel, uh, of the land saw them as grasshoppers, right? And we see it was the opposite. They were terrified and distressed. I mean, the Moabites had been defeated by the Amorites. And then this nation of ex-slaves sweeps in and absolutely wipes the floor with the Amorites, right? With the nation that had defeated them. So they were, they were scared. They weren't only scared of defeat. 
they'd been defeated before, but they were afraid of being disappeared, right? That when an ox eats grass, that's what we keep hearing them say, the sheer force of the grip of its mouth and the power of its neck, it just uproots it from its roots, right? Not leaving a trace. That's what they were afraid of. Okay, so verse six. Come now, therefore, I pray you, curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall prevail that we may defeat them and that I may drive them out of the land. For I know that he who you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. So what does Balak do here? He makes a calculated decision. He actually sounds like a relatively wise person, right? Smarter than a lot of the other antagonists that we see throughout the, the Torah of the Bible. According to the Midrash, he actually consulted the Midianites. He did his reconnaissance. And he did, why did he consult the Midianites about how to defeat Moshe? Why would he consult the Midianites? Why Midian? Because that's where Moshe was raised. And what did the Midianites tell him? They told him that the key to Moshe's strength was that he was able to communicate verbally and directly with God. So I guess he figured, well, I can invest in better weapons and more soldiers, maybe hire mercenaries, but that probably won't do anything. It's clear that these Israelites have a very powerful God on their side. This is clearly a spiritual war. So let's invest our resources into attacking them spiritually, right? To attacking the source of their strength. So he reaches out to the internationally renowned Gentile prophet whose powers are just irrefutable. Everybody knows. He can communicate with God directly. Everybody knows about him. His name was what? Bil'am. Bil'am. Which we can tell from the Hebrew comes from the word bli'am, which means without a nation. He isn't a nationalist, right? He has no loyalties. He is out for himself. He is a, a spiritual mercenary. And by the way, in a world increasingly consumed by globalists, right, pushing for all sorts of new world orders and great resets. And by the way, this isn't like, you know, a conspiracy theory. This is just what's happening. It's pretty clear. You hear them say it themselves. These globalists, I, I think that the thinking and the ideology and the approach that we see here in Bil'am does shine some light and provide insight into the anti-God motivations of, of control and domination that we see playing out before our eyes in the world today. Because that's ultimately what the whole thing is about, right? It's about control. The desire of Balak to control God and manipulate the spiritual realm and bend to his will. And, and Bilam, the same thing, right? To, to bend God's will to Bilam's will and his greed and his desires, which isn't shocking, right? Because that's what idolaters were all about. We're talking about idolaters here. And that's what idolaters do. And that's what idolatry is. Right? There's the God of rain and the God of war and the God of money. And through man's actions, mankind can do something. Right, They can bribe these gods, pacify them, do something to affect the outcome that they're seeking. Right, It's sort of like, like the divine vending machine. Jeremy and I used to always talk about that because we ourselves, some I would say something to Jeremy, he'd say something to me and say like, oh, you're falling into the vending machine. Hashem's not a vending machine where you just say these magical mix of words and it just creates the effect we want. But you'd think that Bilam would be different, right? Bilam was, at, was a, a real prophet. He was a real prophet. The sages tell us that while totally incomparably different from Moses, right? He's antithetical opposites from Moshe Rabbeinu. The level of prophecy of Bilam was actually similar to the level of Moshe, of Moshe, of Moses. Right, so the nations can say, well, we didn't have a prophet. Yeah, they had a prophet, right? And that was Bilam. But here we see that while he could communicate with God, his relationship with God was in so many ways sort of juvenile, right? He's very much still, he, he still sought to control God and to bend God's will to his will, right? His will being totally contrary to God's will. He was trying to make God's will into his will. but. He still thought that through his penetrating spiritual insights, which he had, for example, he knew exactly when to curse the nation of Israel because there's times in the spectrum of the, uh, of the movement of time throughout history, times in the day when Hashem is sitting in judgment. It's true. 
And he believed that through those back-end mechanics of knowing exactly when God was sitting in judgment, that he can sort of force God's hand. And by the way, it'd be easiest to throw stones at him and castigate Bilam for this type of thinking, but many of us have our moments where we interact with Hashem in exactly the same way, at least I do. But, uh, but we'll, we'll get back to that soon. Anyways, Balak sends an entire delegation to Bilam with their amulets and their sorcery to offer him pretty much anything to curse Israel. They beg him to come with them. He asks them to stay the night so he can hear from Hashem how to proceed. Because, by the way, that was one of the differences between Bilam and Moshe. Right? Moshe received prophecy face to face when awake. Whereas Bilam fell to the ground and often prophesied in his sleep. But anyways, let's look back. Chapter 11, verse 22. am hayotse mimitraim. Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt, which covers the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. And God said to Bilam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So it's interesting. You could already see him starting to manipulate with his very first words. He says, there's a people coming out of Egypt. Why didn't he say the nation of Israel, the Israelites? Because he already knew, right? He knew that Hashem loves Israel. And so he thought that if he left things ambiguous, if he phrased things in sort of a, a hazy kind of way, he could put one past God or just have God not focus on that. So he left out that it was the nation of Israel that he was talking about, right? A little detail of relevance, I think. Anyways, how does Hashem respond? He says, don't go. And I say, I, I, I love this. I love this part. He says not to go curse them. Why? Because they are blessed. Because Israel is blessed. I never read it that far, this way before reading it now. But there's just something about the phraseology there that really just, it warms my heart and it comforts me and it makes me feel loved. It just sounds like an existential truth, that we are a blessed nation. That is just the truth of our essence, a truth that transcends individual moments of rebellion and idol worship and misbehavior. We're blessed. Not blessed right now, right? Not blessed at the moment but just blessed. We're just blessed. That's who we are in the eyes of Hashem, a blessed nation. I mean, I'm personally at this stage where I'm tasting parenthood for the first time, and Dvash is going through her quote-unquote right terrible twos, even though I love every temper tantrum that she throws. Really, I hate to miss them. I love them. And yes, I furrow my brow and put her on the punishment stool and act angry, but it doesn't change my fierce, transcendent, non-negotiable love for that little ball of honey, for that delicious little girl. Jeremy, I know you miss her right now. I know this is making you miss Dvash. You can't not miss Dvash. But either way, she's just loved. Not conditionally. I just love her. Okay, so let's go on. Chapter 22, verse 13. We're running out of time. Why does this always happen? And Balaam, Bilam rose up in the morning and said to the prince, to the princes of Balak, go to your land, for the Lord refuses to give me leave to go with you. And so the manipulation and the intentional ambiguousness continues. He says, He says, go to your land because Hashem isn't letting me go with you. Right? There's no talk about the nation being blessed. No talk about none of that. He wants them to think that they weren't a dignified enough delegation. That it was something personal about them. And that is actually the conclusion that King Balak came to, right? Bilam's manipulation succeeded. So Balak sent an even more high-ranking, dignified delegation. For those of you who are wondering, why does he keep sending these delegations? Well, read it that way, right? Read it that way. It's because of you that Bilam was trying to make them think that that was the real reason. And this delega delegation really laid it on. I mean, this is clearly the number one national priority for Moab. There's nothing more important to them right now. This is an issue of survival. And how does Bilam, the sorcerer, respond? Numbers 22, 18. And Bilam answered and said to the servants of Balak, if Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or to do more. You see, every, every communication 
is calculated and weighed out, right? If Jeremy asked me to take care of his cat, let's say, who would do that? But he asked me to take care of his cat. And I say, Jeremy, you could offer me all the pizza in the world and I wouldn't do it. What am I essentially saying there? That my currency, what makes me tick is pizza. Bilam is a money guy and he's conveying that. He's showing his cards right there. Who said anything about money? Nobody, only him. So now we see what makes him tick. So Bilam is really hoping that this works out. He's already hearing like cha-ching. And it seems like this delegation, they're offering him a blank check. So he asked them to stay for the night as well. He actually begs them, please, nah. He says, please stay for the night. And, uh, and they do. And what does Hashem tell him that night? Chapter 22, verse 20. And God came to Bilam at night and said to him, if the men come to call you, rise up and go with them. But only that word which I shall say to you, that you shall do. So it seems like Hashem has changed his mind, which must really excite Bilam. But look closely at the Hebrew. Oh, I wish I made a slide for this. I'm sorry that I didn't. Hashem says that Bilam can go itam, right? Itam with them. That's Aleph, Taf, Mem. But Bilam has to go imahem. Also the word with them, meaning that King James Bible, whatever Bible, even Art Scroll, whatever you're using, it's the same translation. But in Hebrew, the word is different. Imahem with an ayin, ayin, mem, hey, mem. Now, so what, what's the difference? Im with an ayin implies full togetherness in mission and in spirit. Bil'am asked Hashem if he could go with them with an ayin, right? With them in spirit, like on this mission with them. And Hashem responded that he could go itam, meaning just physically with them, but not with them united in their mission. That's not what his, his, uh, he was uh, permitted to do. He said that Bilam can go with them, but knowing Bilam's heart, as only his creator can, Hashem stresses again, you can go with them, but only that which Hashem tells you you can do. You can go with them, itam, itam, aleph taf mem. So he woke up early in the morning and saddled his own donkey, which of course is a very well-discussed reference to the same words that were used for Abraham when he saddled his donkey as he woke up early to fulfill Hashem's uh, will that he sacrificed his beloved son Yitzchak. Why, we remember that. Abraham woke up and saddled his donkey. So their actions, they both woke up early. Their actions are the same, but their motivations could not be more opposite to one another. Bilam to fulfill his own will and his own interests, and Avram to fulfill Hashem's will and Hashem's interests. Interests not at all aligned with the interest of Hashem. But, uh, but each of them were equally eager to do so. Avraham against his own, his, his greatest, most beloved son he's going to sacrifice. And he was equally eager with Bilam that he woke up early to saddle his own donkey. Anyways, now we get to the portion of the talking donkey. And there's just so much to talk about here. But uh, that would take up the rest of the fellowship. So I just want to say a few words about this, seeing we're running out of time. Um, because, uh, you know, I, I want to talk about this humiliating situation. Because it was humiliating. It was a humiliating situation. The sages of Israel even say that the Moabite dignitaries saw this playing out, at least some dimension of this, and said, what, this guy is supposed to defeat an entire nation and he can't even control his donkey? And there are those that say that that humiliation was indeed one of the primary purposes for the whole episode. They say that Hashem already had planned that Bilam would be used to powerfully bless the Jewish people, but in order to be used for such a lofty purpose, he needed to be deflated, right? He needed the pride and the haughtiness in his heart needed to be removed from him in order for him to be a fitting vessel to bless Israel. And having a, uh, a serious heart-to-heart -heart debate with the donkey, that, that's a good start, right? Anyways, an angel of Hashem was standing sword unsheathed in front of Bilam's donkey. And the animal could see him, but Bilam couldn't, of course, you know, a further humiliation to him. And the donkey was backing away, pinning him against the wall and hurting his leg quite badly. And he was in pain and he was enraged and he was hitting the donkey and beating with a stick. And then here's where it sort of gets even more interesting. The donkey turned to Bilam and starts speaking with him. Now, I just want to take a second here and share a thought I just had. I just had a group come out to the farm and it's always hard for me to take a group around on Sunday when I'm preparing for the fellowship but I had no choice, I just needed to. 
and I was telling them, uh, you know, this sort of talking about this obvious question about why does he engage the donkey in discussion rather than just like saying, whoa, whoa there, buddy. We'll talk about this in a second, but you're talking to me? You're a talking donkey? But he doesn't say that. He just sort of engages him in discussion. And, you know, for me personally, I've thought about times where Hashem is talking to me so, so loud, but I'm just so lost in my own thoughts and my own will that I barely see it, that I barely hear it. Or it's just overload, sensory overload. I was actually just thinking about that time. I've shared it with you before that the uh, Arabs and the Germans were building our house of prayer. You know, it was like the Germans who were most of them children and grandchildren of Nazis. And they told us descendants of Esau, of Esau, and the Arabs, descendants of Ishmael, and they're building a house of prayer for Jews in Judea. How was it that I was able to see that and not immediately be overtaken by a wave of, what is going on here? A donkey is talking to me? Esau and Ishmael are building a house of prayer for Jews in Judea. Sometimes we just don't see it. We're just so lost in the centuries of what, what happened. But anyways, the donkey says, why have you struck me these three times? By the way, a very interesting usage of the word three times, shalosh regalim is used, right? Shalosh regalim, the three times that the Jewish people would go up to Jerusalem, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Uh, you know, I hope we have the time to go into this, but I think we discussed it last year. It sounds familiar to me. And I think, by the way, Tabitha includes a link in the bottom of the corresponding fellowship from last year. And th so that could be fun to watch. If you don't watch those, it's, it's not a bad review. You know, those were, that was some good times we had there. Anyways, Bilam responds to the donkey, if I had a sword, I would have killed you. And the donkey then starts speaking with, um, with Bilam. Wait a second. I just lost this quote here. Okay. Okay, I'm still very lost. Thank God for uh, editing so we can take this out, which we never, ever do, actually. So this will be in. So forgive me, everybody. I need a new computer. Okay. So we're at the talking donkey. I actually forgot what I'm looking for. So the angel of Hashem standing sword unsheathed in front of Bilam's donkey. And, uh, and Bilam doesn't see it. And the donkey starts speaking to him. Right? That's where we were. And then... Bilam's eyes are opened and he sees the angel standing right before him with his sword unsheathed and he falls to the ground and he humbles himself and he, uh, he offers to turn back, right? To which the angel says again, no, you can go with them, but only speak what I tell you to. You see the, the theme here? Oh, only speak what I tell you to. And again, when I read this, I just feel a lot of love. I see how fiercely Hashem protects his nation. I just have this visual of this angel with the sword protecting Israel. All of this happening behind our backs. If we could only know the myriads of miracles performed for us every single day without our knowledge. If we could only know the love for Hashem feels for us despite our blemishes and our shortcomings. Anyways, he continues on and meets Balak and they start offering sacrifices. And Balak took Bilam to the high places of Baal where they could see just a sliver of the Israelite camp in order to curse them from there. And I believe it was Yishai that shared the idea that he had to be in a place where they could only see a small sliver of the camp, right? A specific angle on the nation, because it's only that way that you would be able to curse, right? Because if you only see a very limited and finite perspective on someone, then you can take them out of context. You can judge them negatively and you can distort the truth of their essence. And that's why it says in Pirkei Avot, right? Ethics of our fathers. Judge everybody by the benefit of the doubt, which I always read is like exactly that. Judge everybody by the benefit of the doubt, but it actually doesn't say that. It doesn't say it says judge the entirety of the person by the benefit of the doubt, because only when you take their entirety into account, all that they've experienced and all that they've been through and all of their personality and all of their attributes, only then can you really, really see them for who they are in total and understand them and judge them in truth. And so Bilam and Balak 
were out to get a distorted perspective. That's what they wanted. They wanted a distorted, distorted perspective. They didn't want the truth. They wanted to curse. They wanted to see the worst in the Jewish people, right? And he tries to curse, but the blessings just start coming out. I know we're running late, but I just love these blessings. I'm not even going to share all of them. It would just be the rest of the portion, right? He says, for from the top of the rocks, I see him. And from the hills, I behold him. Lo, the people shall live alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? That's one way of translating it. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. And so these are existential statements about the deepest nature of the, of the Jewish people, right? That we're destined to live alone and not to assimilate and not to blend in, that they don't, that the nations don't, don't hate us because we're different. They hate us because we're not actually being the nation we're supposed to be and standing alone and standing apart and being different, not better or worse, but set aside for a purpose of holiness and sanctity and, and set aside to shine a light of love and reverence to the world. And then he utters the famous words, right? The words that people really often mean, right? That they want to die the death of the righteous. I've heard this in a lot of different ways, which is of course easier than living the life of the righteous. You know how many Jews have their burial plots in Israel, but they live throughout the diaspora, right? Where, do they, where are they living? Are, are they living for Israel? Are they living for Russia? Maybe, maybe, you know, but, but what are you living for? We, we're not supposed to die in this land. We're supposed to live in this land. We're supposed to live a righteous life, not just die a righteous life. So Bilam had his own, own interests and motivations, but in the moment of truth, he wanted to at least leave the world as a righteous man. So Balak brings Bilam to another place and Bilam cannot restrain himself, right? Each blessing is more beautiful than the one before it. So here we are, uh, chapters, chapter 23, verses 21 through 24. He has not seen iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him and the trumpet blast of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He has, as it were, the strength of a wild ox. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel what God has done. Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift up himself as a young lion. He shall not lie down until he eats of the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. I always like that verse because my name is in there and so is Jeremy's son name in there. La vie and Ari, different types of lions. We've spoken about how many different names for lions are in Hebrew, and the reason lion is so central a character. But anyways, right? So there's no, no iniquity, no perverseness, enchantment, no soothsaying, no fortune-telling, none of these Gentile pagan practices that essentially boil down to trying to control God, right? That's what it was all about for them, controlling God, not having a real relationship with God, but controlling God. And so while Balak called us an oxen, Bilam ups the game and he calls us a great lion. And by the way, these prophecies, you know, these prophecies, they're just, they're, they're allusions so clearly and obviously to messianic times. But we'll hopefully get into that soon. But, but you can just picture Balak right now. His heart is melting. Fine, don't curse them, right? But don't bless them. So he takes them to one, he takes Bilam to one last place in hopes of one last curse. And from this spot comes perhaps the most famous blessing that we have. Possibly the first blessing any Jew learns when they are three years old. Because it's the very beginning of our prayers, our morning prayers. Right after we say, Modani, thank you for waking us up. Right? We, we arise in the morning and we say, Matovu. Right? We say, Matovu. Oh, halecha Yaakov, mishkenotecha Yisrael, matovu. Oh, halecha Yaakov, mishkenotecha Yisrael. How goodly are your tents, O Jacob, and your tabernacles, O Israel. That's what he says. And of course, the sages explain, many of you may have heard it, that Bilam was gazing at the modesty of the Jewish tents that the openings were all facing away from each other. So their doors and their windows didn't peer into each other, right? Protecting the modesty and the sanctity of the camp. And it's interesting, the sages actually ask how they were able to maintain this with all the 
uh, assembly and disassembly and assembly and disassembly. And they say that all of the openings were towards the front of the tents and the openings to the tents were pointing towards the tabernacle. They were pointing towards the tabernacle, which is really beautiful. Meaning that wherever the tabernacle was, that's where the tents open up to, which is just so beautiful. I remember getting marriage advice from a dear friend of mine named Vance. And he said that if you're looking at each other and trying to fix each other and always looking at each other, that's a recipe in marriage for disaster. But if you're side by side, each with your eyes on Hashem, then you will come together in love and in harmony as you seek to serve him in truth. The same with these tents, right? How do they maintain their modesty? By keeping the entrance trained on Hashem, by keeping their eyes and their hearts trained right towards him. And so, my friend, there's a lot more that I wanted to discuss here. There's a lot more. But, uh, but we're out of time for Parshad Balak. But I do want to wind down with this idea. Because, you know, Rabbi Yossi Lu, he asks why the Torah portion is named after such an evil Moabite king. And Rabbi Lu says that it's all about Mashiach. That this really comes to Mashiach. I didn't make this into a slide. But this is chapter 24, verse, verse 17. He says, I see it, but not now. I behold it, but not soon. A star has gone forth from Jacob, and a staff will arise from Israel, which will crush, which will crush the princes of Moab and uproot the sons of, of, Sheth, of Seth. And so we could just analyze this for another hour, this one verse. But it's a prophecy about the coming of Mashiach and what we're awaiting right now. right? And that's what this, all of this was, prophecy of Mashiach after prophecy of Mashiach. And why do these beautiful blessings and the prayers and the prophecies come into the world. Ultimately, they came into the world because of King Balak. His evil intent was transformed to goodness and blessing, right? The darkness of his motivation was transformed to light. That's part of the reason I believe that these blessings have such a prominent impact and such an important place in the consciousness of the Jewish people because they originated as curses. And that's what Mashiach is, right? Mashiach is the power of transformation from darkness to light. As a matter of fact, the sages tell us that Balak, the Moabite king, who was descended from him? Let's take a second and think about this. Who was descended from him? Just guess. He was a Moabite king. Yes, Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess, great-grandmother of King David, Ruth the Moabitess, who underwent the ultimate transformation. Ruth was a direct descendant of King Balak, meaning that King David and the Mashiach that we're waiting for and praying for was descended from Balak. How crazy is that? Mashiach, who will bring the world through a transformation like no other in history. Mashiach was descended from Balak. Can you imagine a greater transformation than that? And so, my friends, if the darkness of the evil King Balak can be transformed to the light of Mashiach, well, then obviously we can too, right? Hashem, Hashem, please allow all of us in this holy fellowship to serve you in the way that only we can. Give us the strength to play our role in transforming darkness into light and hastening the arrival of Mashiach and the era of redemption. Geulah Hashem, that's what we're davening for and praying for. That's what this is all about. Allow us, Hashem, to submit to your will and to make your will into our will. Not the other way around, God forbid. Please, Hashem, allow us to make your will into our will. And bless us, Hashem, to walk in your ways and be a light to all that we encounter. That's what I see Jeremy and Tehila doing on their trip throughout America right now. That's what you're all doing right there. And just... What's happening with them in, what is it, Ohio, Iowa, I forgot what it is. It's just a little foreshadowing, a little hint to what I believe is going to happen when we all come together here in Judea. May it be soon. So it's now my honor to bless you all with the blessing that Aaron, the high priest, the Kohanim, right, his descendants bless the Jewish people and bless every day. We get those blessings. And as I say every week, I'm not a descendant of Aaron. I believe I'm a descendant from Judah, but I don't know. But I'm not a descendant from Aaron. I wouldn't know if I was. Um, but uh, we are in Amkoani, a nation of priests. And so it's our privilege and our honor and our purpose and our mission to be able to bless all of you. Yivarechecha.
Adonai v'yishmerecha, Ya'er Adonai panav elecha v'yichuneka, Yisa Adonai panav elecha v'yisemlecha shalom. May Hashem bless and protect you. May He shine His light and His countenance upon you. And may He give you peace. Amen. Love you all very much. Reach out. Reach out to me, to Jeremy, to Tehillah. Reach out as we love you. We can't wait to hear from you. And we'll see you next week. Shalom. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.